0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean.
1: And I'm the very titular Carrie.
0: And this is the show that takes you into the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Caroline, what are we trying to find an answer to this week?
1: (laughs) Well, Sean, it's been a minute since we explored a nitty-gritty true crime story... So I thought now would be a good time to dive into one that isn't as well known as some of the other Unsolved Mysteries.
0: Okay, what are we getting into? A, a murder? A <laughs> theft? A kidnapping?
1: Definitely murder. Okay. M- more than one. Today I'll be discussing the story of the Keddie Cabin Murders. Oh, I haven't heard of this one. A lot of people haven't. It's pretty messed up, though. This story in particular kind of un- unnerves me uh, because of its unsolved nature, which okay. is always comforting.
0: Killer on the loose.
1: Yeah. And uh, the second reason is probably because of the circumstances. Um, the four victims of this homicide were staying at a cabin at the Ketty Resort in California when they were killed. Now, the Keddy Resort was located in rural Sierra Nevada and was once a very popular resort destination. But at this point, it had fallen into disrepair. And in in 1981, when these murders occurred, people were kind of just living there. So, yeah, I mean, you were a Boy Scout. Um, I've stayed in cabins before. I feel like there's a certain vulnerability of being in like a cabin in the woods and yeah. you're kind of, you know, giving it up to God, so to speak. That uh, no one's just going to burst in or something.
0: We almost never had cabins in the Boy Scouts. That was sort of, um, you know, you're you're halfway to a hotel if you're in a cabin. We were mostly. But so you
1: in... went to camp and things like that.
0: Yeah, and we were in tents there too. Well, they were like oh boy. big lean-tos, but must have
1: smelled really bad.
0: Well, it's six boys living in a, a uh, lean-to tent uh, for
1: a week. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely, it did. <laughs> But yes, being out in the out in the wilderness, away from everything, uh, you get the best stars and the best scares mm-hmm. um, compared to the city. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I'm someone who has stayed at a cabin at not really a resort, but like a, a vacation area, um, a bunch. And there is that kind of feeling that is different than when you're home, where you might be making sure all the doors are locked and um, your alarm is on, things like that. At a cabin, you're like, well, I got this rusty old lock and my dog to let me know if anything comes in. Uh, so, yeah, it's that vulnerability that makes it kind of creepy.
0: Yeah, we've all seen m- m- far more movies where a killer murdered a bunch of teenagers in a cabin. You don't see those so m- so much when the kids are all at an ice skating party.
1: Mm-hmm. So the four victims we will be discussing today are... This is a bit of a spoiler alert. Uh, Glenna Susan Sharp, a.k.a. Sue. Her daughter, Tina Sharp. Her son, John Sharp. And John's friend, Dana Wingate. Who's a, a boy, Dana. Sue Sharp lived in Connecticut until the fall of 1980 when she left the state and an abusive marriage to the father of her five children. That's James Sharp. Her children were the aforementioned John, who's 15, Tina, 12, and the other kids, Sheila, 14, Rick, 10, and Greg, 5. Sue decided to relocate to Northern California to be near her brother, Don, but eventually made her way to the Ketty Resort in the community of Ketty, because a lot of these cabins had recently been converted into low-income housing. So she began renting Cabin 28 there.
0: So this is basically a town at this point, but it's just still called Ketty Resort?
1: Yes, like the area where all the cabins are was the old Ketty Resort, and um, pretty affluent people used to live there. But at this point, the town was still so small that the cabins had kind of been run down. And they're like, yeah, I guess we'll do low-income housing now. So that's what they were working with. In April 1981, Sue was still living there with her five kids. Many other families with children lived in the various other cabins in the area as well and there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of space for the kids to run around and enjoy the outdoors. I mean you're basically in the forest um, so the kids were described as normal and happy-go-lucky, enjoying spending time with friends and running around and doing things outside.
0: So they, they came from a tough situation but it sounds like they're adjusting well in their um, weird little cabin community.
1: Yeah. Cabin 28 itself had three bedrooms, Johnny, who's the oldest, and a boy. He took the unfinished basement. Rick and Greg took a bedroom. Sue and Tina shared a room. And Sheila had her own bedroom, I assume, because she was the oldest girl. Sue was definitely struggling to make ends meet because she only received $250 a month from her ex-husband. And she also used food stamps and welfare to survive. So she's doing her best. And she's taking care of five kids. Yeah. So along with that, of just being a mom to five school-age kids, she attended business classes at the local community college and was a hard worker who made great grades. Um, But she was also looked down upon by some around her due to her being on welfare and apparently dating around.
0: She's a single woman, like, why not? Let her her sow her wild oats a little bit. Yeah, I mean... Bring some light into her life.
1: Yeah, there was gossip about her being a sex worker, or that she was dealing drugs. I mean, it was...
0: And how dare she try to support (laughs) her children?
1: Right? I mean, she was doing her best, and she was looking forward to owning her own small business, which is what she was going to school to do.
0: That was selling drugs and sex?
1: (laughs) I don't think so. Um, And she wanted to finally get a house big enough and safe enough for all of her kids to live in comfortably. So that was really her goal. Um, Because she dealt with a lot of judgy people around, she mostly kept to herself, but did develop a close relationship with her next door neighbors, the Seabolts, and her other neighbors, Marilyn and Martin Smart. Marilyn's son, Martin's stepson, Justin, became fast friends with the youngest Sharp boys, Rick and Greg.
0: You know, as affordable housing goes, it's way cooler to be playing around in an old um, ski resort as a kid as opposed to like some grim concrete high rise. Right? Oh,
1: totally. I mean, if you have to, you know, do the best with uh, low come housing that you can, I mean, it seems pretty ideal for a bunch of kids who like the outdoors, especially back in the day where not everything is about Wi-Fi and cable. <laughs> So Saturday, April 11th, 1981, was a pretty normal weekend day for the Sharp family. Um, Around 1.30, Sue and Sheila drove to Ganser Park in Quincy, California, which is fairly nearby, to pick up John and his friend Dana Wingate and come back to Keddie. Around 3.30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy, possibly to see some friends, and were seen in the downtown area. A local woman um, in Quincy named Donna Williams later claimed she picked them up in front of a tire store and gave them a ride to another friend's home, and that they were seen attending a party at Oakland Camp.
0: Classic tire party. Got to go pick <laughs> up your tires for the, uh, tire the neighborhood store shindig
1: party. That's a that's a clear a clear path. Um, meanwhile, Justin Smart came over to spend the night and hang out with Rick and Greg, and these kinds of sleepovers were very common for kids in this area. Um, Sheila actually left cabin 28 around 8 p.m to spend the night next door at the Seabolts and Tina, who was already there watching TV with them, uh, returned back to the cabin at 9:30. so they basically traded daughters. Gotcha. So what exactly happened after Tina returned home remains a mystery. Tina's the mom. No it's the, the young the younger daughter. Tina's twelve. Sheila is fourteen. Sheila goes over to sleep over at the Seabolt's. Tina was already there, but she goes back home to sleep. Gotcha. Um, we're gonna skip the chunk of time right after Tina remains home, uh, gets home because we don't exactly know what happens. And for now, we'll just move forward to the morning of April twelfth. Around seven or eight a.m., Sheila returned home to Cabin twenty-eight from her sleepover. And discovered the crime scene.
0: Oh, no. How old is Sheila again? 14.
1: Yeah. In an episode of People Magazine, a magazine Investigates on Investigation Discovery, Sheila described I, what she saw.
0: I'm glad People Magazine is on this. We need the, all the top people on this case.
1: They're big on true crime, surprisingly. So Sh- Sheila says uh, as follows. I was not sure who the bodies were. Everybody was tied together with medical tape and electrical cord. I scanned the room a little bit. I did not see my mom. There was a hammer and a bent knife. I wasn't sure if anyone was still in there. I remember dropping my stuff, running back next door, screaming. All the bodies that she had seen were bloody, and she thought she recognized her brother Johnny, but she wasn't sure. Yeah. Sheila stayed with the Seabolts as they called the police and the older Seabolt son, Jamie, went back over to the cabin to check things out, which was a very brave move.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because at this point, you don't know anything. You don't know if the killer's still in the house.
1: Mm-hmm. He carefully walked around the cabin, trying to figure out if anyone was still there, and he ended up looking in one of the bedroom windows. Now, incredibly, Rick, Greg, and Justin were all sleeping peacefully in the room and still alive. Wow. Yeah. Jamie quickly directed them to leave the cabin through the window so they would avoid seeing the carnage in the main room. And soon after the three boys were discovered, the sheriff arrived on the scene with Sue's brother, Don, right behind him. It took Don a few times of going in and out of the cabin because it was very emotionally difficult to deal with seeing what he saw. But he was able to identify Sue and her son, John Sharp, and John's friend, Dana. As the three bodies that were in the room. John. Oh,
0: so, so Dana was over enough that the uncle knew who he was. I think
1: so, yeah. John had sustained a lot of injuries. And it seemed like a fight had taken place inside the cabin. They believed Johnny was probably trying to protect his mother. And fought back the hardest. Which is why he had a lot of defensive wounds. The victims were all stabbed and beaten with two separate hammers. And... One was at the scene. Um, That's the one that Sheila had initially spotted. The other hammer was missing. They felt like this murder was personal because there were stab marks on the walls and it kind of occurred with like a degree of brutality that seemed to point towards anger and like, you know, someone
0: stab marks on the walls. Like here, I'm stabbing through you into the wall or just like, (laughs) I'm so mad that
1: I'm just probably both. The killer or killers had also taken their time with what they had done. Now, I say killers um, because it became apparent early on that it would make sense for there to have been multiple assailants in this case. Because two hardy, like, in their prime teenage boys, along with their mother, um, had all been subdued.
0: And... they somehow knew there were two hammers involved? Like, here's one hammer, but there was at least one other one here? I believe
1: so. They were probably different kinds of hammers. Maybe they had different, like, wound um, sizes, things like that. So, there's three bodies and three surviving children sleeping peacefully in another room. But where was Tina? That became the big question.
0: And she wasn't anywhere in the house?
1: No. Tina, who was described as an angel by those who knew her, was missing from the cabin entirely. How old's Tina? Twelve. And she had light special needs. So they were thinking maybe there could be a fourth survivor. They're trying to be very hopeful. Um, Once police realized that she was missing, they exhaustively searched the area, combing over roads and woods down to the Butte County line. They put out an all-points bulletin, they put up posters all over the area. I mean, they were very extensive with the search. The FBI was involved in the early weeks of the case, but eventually handed it back to the sheriff's office, because I guess they, after that time, they were like, yeah, we can't keep looking for her forever. So The Ketty community was in a state of total terror, and investigators began to wonder whether this could possibly be a random crime or a targeted murder.
0: Right, but they initially thought targeted, right? The, yes. Because of the rage?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like, could this even be a random thing? But they weren't finding enough evidence to point toward anyway. So, of course, they started with Sue's ex-husband, James, because that's where you always start, with a spouse.
0: Sure, but he's in Connecticut?
1: Now, I, that seemed unclear, but... um. Well, I'll get to it, but I wasn't sure where he was when this all went down. Jim was known to be abusive to Sue, and she was terrified of him. That was why she left. There was also the fact that, um, as Sheila stated on the ID documentary, Jim had also sexually abused her and Tina before. Um, so Jim was not a good guy right? <laughs> to and, start with.
0: And Tina was abducted.
1: Yeah which happens uh, more often than you'd think when it comes to exes. They, uh, a lot of kidnappings that happened within the family. Investigators tracked Jim down and began to surveil him. They were hoping that maybe he still had Tina alive, and he had kidnapped her because she was also considered his favorite. Days went by, though, and there was no sign of her either with Jim or in the area, and he was finally questioned because they were trying to like sneak around at first um but he delivered a solid alibi placing him far away from ketty at the time of the murders again i'm not sure where exactly but maybe he was just like i'm i was in connecticut so for that part of time he was crossed off the list
0: just for that part of time well who knows foreshadowing care
1: <laughs> at that point he was crossed off the list Next, the police began looking further into Sue's life, especially considering the gossip about her around town being what it was.
0: Sure, yeah. If she was really involved in drugs or sex work, there could be some dangerous characters.
1: hmm They were trying to figure out who would want her dead specifically, because she was an adult and she was more likely to have murderous enemies than two teenage boys.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't know what Dana's been getting up
1: into. <laughs> That's true. Um, so more people around her were checked off the list. Your ex-boyfriends, your acquaintances, area serial killer duo Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool were also cleared of suspicion in 1983.
0: Because <laughs> they just happened to be trolling around this area. <laughs> we were this
1: killing step- far away from there.
0: <laughs> well, Henry probably tried to say he did this one. Probably,
1: yeah. <laughs> Carla McMullen, a family acquaintance, later told detectives that Dana Wingate had recently stolen an unknown quantity of LSD from local drug dealers, but she was unable to provide proof of this claim. Hmm. No drugs were found at the cabin nor in anyone's system. And the current sheriff, that's the sheriff today, feels that these salacious theories don't have anything to do with the murder. Just gossip, gossip, gossip. Mm -hmm. So they kept trying to dig deeper.
0: Do people have more fun gossiping about the dead?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there is kind of an element of that. Tina's elementary school teacher at the time, Joel Lipsy, jumped in to assist with the search for Tina and had initially been questioned solely because he was her current teacher. But the police started to develop even more interest in him as a suspect.
0: Oh, no.
1: Apparently, he had a fixation on Tina like having a picture of her on his desk and having a picture of her at home kind of fixation.
0: So he shouldn't have showed up to volunteer to help with the search on the night that she went missing wearing the T-shirt that he'd had made with her face on it and stuff.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) there was no T-shirt, but um, a lot of killers, they say, um, put themselves in these places, whether they're trying to help the police or something, because it's kind of like a game.
0: Yeah, like um, Edmund Kemper. Edmund Kemper. Yes. Edmund Kemper was a big police fan, right?
1: Well, he was friends with police. Um, yeah. So because Joel was kind of already creeping on Tina, they uh, several people believed that he had abducted her and I guess killed the other people to get her. I will say having a picture of one of your current students on your desk and in your house is not great.
0: Yeah, no, and he had it right next to his hammer collection.
1: <laughs> According to witnesses, Lipsy had been at the Keddy Bar the night of the killings, and looking at the initial report on Lipsy, he dropped his date off before midnight and told investigators he returned home and went to bed.
0: His date was an adult woman?
1: Yes, I think her name was Tanya.
0: Okay. Just making sure she was of age.
1: Yeah, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, so he said he returned home, went to bed. But did he, Sean? Well, did he? Now, I don't want to paint people with a broad brush, but he was later charged with committing lewd and lascivious acts with a child under 14. Eee! And he was added to the sex offender registry.
0: Okay, so he was a creep, but nothing went further with the murder with, with this guy? Here's, well, to be fair, when, when, you, when you describe this man, I'm picturing like, the science teacher from Stranger Things, like a skinny guy with kind of a pervy mustache. Mm-hmm. That guy's not a creep in the show.
1: No, um, he's a very nice man.
0: Very nice man. <laughs> I'm sure he's a nice actor in real life, but he does, does have the creepy '80s mustache. Mm-hmm. So skinny little glasses. teacher glasses. I don't think this guy is by himself fighting off the two teenagers uh, and the mom to get the little girl away. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's that which um, he he was basically like a like a skinny just teacher type. Um, He was also, he was taken off the list once he established this alibi. But I...
0: I was exposing myself at a playground on the other side of town (laughs) that same night.
1: Well, here's the thing. He said he dropped off his date before midnight, and then he went home and went to bed. Okay? Now, if we think about the timeline of how this might have played out, Tina left the Seabolts around 9.30... And I assume the murders took place late at night or early morning before Sheila arrived home at 7 a.m. So getting to Cabin 28 around midnight after dropping off a date seems like a perfectly reasonable time to begin this crime. Yeah. But then again, I'm unsure if Lipsy was like maybe living with someone that could attest to him being home and sleeping at that time. Um, But it seems like a, a weird... Like, he seems like he could have totally done that at that time. Um, so it, it did seem odd to me.
0: Yeah, not the, not the most airtight alibi?
1: No, it did, definitely not airtight.
0: Well, did, maybe they had a better suspect to move on to?
1: Well, we'll see. Now, Sheila, for her part, thinks the crime was directed toward her mom, and that Johnny and Dana arrived home from their party and interrupted whatever was happening. So, let's go back to what is known about the roughly 12 hours between when Sheila left the house and when she got back in the morning. Okay. What time Johnny and Dana got back to their, um, back to cabin 28 from their party in Quincy was unclear, but it was after about 10 p.m. because their TV show, uh, Rick and Justin watching a show with Sue, they went into the bedroom to sleep and Greg was already asleep. So the boys went to sleep around 10. So John and Dana were not home by that point. Sue remained on the couch waiting for the older boys to get home. And witnesses reported John and Dana hitchhiking back to Keddie between 9 and 10. There are no signs of forced entry. So probably 10 or later, the other boys get home. Sue's body was found under a yellow blanket, nude from the waist down and gagged with a bandana and her own underwear. She had defensive wounds on her arms, as well as a stab wound to the chest, a slashed throat, and a head injury from an air rifle, which was deduced to be a Daisy 880, which is apparently an air rifle for, like, kids or inexperienced people.
0: Yeah, air rifles are, aren't for, like, hurting people or, or right, killing animals. But it's like, this
1: is the kid version, you know? Um, this rifle was also not found in the cabin, though Sue's underwear had been removed. There was also no evidence for sexual assault, which is good.
0: I guess, (laughs) you know, small favors. Yeah.
1: John's throat had been cut and Dana had been strangled with their angles being bound together using an electrical cord and medical tape the latter of which medical tape Sheila says they didn't use and must have been brought to the murderer by the murderer to the scene like that's, they didn't have medical tape at the house
0: That's interesting. Is it possible you just don't know where your mom keeps the medical tape? Could be, but that's what
1: she said. There's that's,
0: yeah, it, it might be, but I all I know is when I was a kid, there are any number of- sure. If I, cu- I wouldn't have known where to find it. If I had cut myself and my mom wasn't home, I wouldn't have had any idea where to get any of the life-saving supplies.
1: So. Yeah. <laughs> the victims had all been beaten on the head with a hammer, and blood spatter suggested the bodies had been moved to stage the scene, so they didn't just fall where they were, with the time of attack being placed between midnight and 2 a.m., Again, fine enough for Joel Lipsy to swing by and commit a kidnapping.
0: Sure, absolutely, unless part of the intel is that his date went really well.
1: <laughs> Who knows? Tina's jacket and shoes were missing from the cabin, alongside a shoebox she had used for a school project that she was particularly attached to. This is like kind of weird and interesting because it seems like she had been allowed to take her school project with her was like, why else would you take this shoebox? I assume there was some sort of diorama or whatever in it. <laughs> so why would she have taken that? I don't know. And why was she allowed to take it?
0: She's like, oh, wait, hold on. Mm-hmm. You got to look at this, though.
1: Mm-hmm. Or she left the house of her own volition and took it. Who knows? They still had no clue.
0: I might need this diorama of the Battle of Hastings.
1: Mm-hmm. You never know when you need a diorama, Sean. There were other odd things that were noticed by nearby residents the night of April 11th, and they recalled these later to police. A dog was heard barking near Cabin 28 during the night. Okay.
0: Someone's dog. (laughs) Hey, trust me, I hear that every night.
1: (laughs) Those with cats noticed they paced in and out of the house restlessly all night when they usually slept.
0: Is this a ghostly uh, theory?
1: I assume it's that the cats knew something was wrong. The, I don't know. The cats can sense death. <laughs> I believe it. The back porch light of cabin 28 was also still on at 4 a.m. A couple nearby had also heard muffled screams around one thirty a.m. but were unable to determine the source. That
0: seems possibly relevant. <laughs> yeah. That fits into our window.
1: Mm-hmm. Some people saw a brown Datsun parked at the cabin that evening, and others noticed a green van. Now, one of these could have been the killers, um, but keep in mind that the boys apparently hitchhiked back to the cabin. Um, so this could have just been a completely random person, or the hitchhiker was the killer.
0: Right. Now, you mean the, like, uh, the driver?
1: Driver of the hitchhikers. <laughs> hitchhiker driver.
0: Boy, wouldn't that be an ironic twist? So nobody ever came forward and said, I was the one who brought these kids
1: home. No, it was just the woman that said she drove them around town. A single fingerprint on the handrail leading to the back door was all that was found in terms of hard evidence, suggesting the killer or killers mostly wore gloves. Despite the chaos of the murder scene, this lack of evidence seemed to point to the fact that this murder had been premeditated and prepared for.
0: Yeah, well, and the fact that you brought two hammers.
1: Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface, to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances... The keep her communities wondering,
0: what happened? Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com
1: You're here, which means you love podcasts. But are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals, free during your trial and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid, but between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Stephen Webber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? No problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash ain't scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. Because of the violence, um, many thought that these might be ritual killings, and this was the early '80s when everything was
0: everything was Satan. Satanists,
1: yeah. <clears throat> um, but the police I think rejected these were Dungeons
0: and Dragons players.
1: <laughs> the police rejected these theories because they really believed that these murders were committed by people who knew the victims personally. And another suspect emerged that did know them personally: the stepfather of survivor Justin Smart, Martin. Now, remember, Rick and Greg were the surviving sons. Yes. And Justin was their friend that was sleeping over. The three of them were found sleeping the next morning. They were all in the house when the murder took place. Mm Mm-hmm. So what's the deal with Martin Smart? Well, apparently, he was a real piece of shit. Okay. He was known to be obsessed with the Bible, but also, as is typical... Uh, hypocritical when it came to how he operated his own morals
0: i see well i've never heard of anything like that no
1: never after an argument with his father martin apparently purchased bomb making equipment to blow up his father's house he frequently practiced his hatchet skills and according to his wife at the time marilyn he was both a wife beater and tried to murder her multiple times
0: how do you get a wife if you're a wife be- if you're a woman beating uh, hatchet throwing bomb maniac?
1: You don't tell them you're that from the jump.
0: I mean, how good's he laying it down between the sheets?
1: I don't think it's that. I think it's fear that keeps a lady. Um, he had. I need e- to get
0: some of that. I don't have any of that.
1: We're married. <laughs> <laughs> He even tried to run over both Marilyn and Justin with a car while in a jealous rage. You want some of that, Sean? Why? So... He's a piece of shit. Yeah.
0: And his son was notably not murdered.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one thing, right? Justin was spared. There was a drug-related speculation about Sue, which we know about. But Martin had confirmed ties to drug running. Having recently lost his job as a cook, Martin made money by selling and manufacturing hash and took charge of a large-scale drug ring along with his friend, John Bo Boobaday.
0: Okay, but it's just weed, though.
1: Hash, specifically. Yeah, but come on. (laughs) Martin met his friend Bo at a VA hospital in Reno, Nevada, when he was attending, claiming he was suffering from PTSD after serving in Vietnam. So he was also a Vietnam vet. Now, some people think that, yeah, sure, he may have had PTSD, but he served as a cook during the war um, and was possibly more likely attempting to obtain veterans benefits versus actually dealing with any trauma
0: yeah but it could have been both who knows he sounds like a very honest and, and <laughs> straightforward guy oh for a straight sure shooter
1: <laughs> yes martin and beau became inseparable after meeting at the hospital and beau moved into cabin 26 with martin and his wife after they left
0: that's interesting
1: mm-hmm. he slept on the couch apparently Bo already had convictions of bank robbery, breaking and entering, and home invasion, and was linked to the Chicago Mafia. Wow! So he had a lot going on there, Good Beau. guy! <laughs> so what tie did Sue have to Martin, aside from just being a friendly neighbor, and that their sons were friends? Some said that Sue was counseling Marilyn about dealing with Martin's abusive tendencies because she had gone through a violent situation herself. That makes sense. And she was trying to convince Marilyn to flee the marriage. Others said that Martin was actually having an affair with Sue. Sue's daughter Sheila disagrees, though, saying her mother would never have been involved with anyone like Smart. That tracks for me because of what she had run away from. Exactly. Um, After the murders, Smart also told investigators that a claw hammer was missing from his cabin. He just...
0: Volunteered that information?
1: just let them know. Since the police hadn't released the fact that a hammer was missing from the crime scene, this put Martin at the top of the suspect list.
0: Yeah, you'd think it would. (laughs) Although, really, that's a very dumb killer move, almost to the point where you go, like, did someone just take it from his shed, maybe?
1: Yeah. There's also the fact that Justin Smart has given conflicting testimony as to what happened on the night of the murder. Because if you think it's hard to believe that three kids wouldn't wake up to the sound of three people being murdered in the room next to them. I do. You're right. (laughs) It's pretty crazy, uh, especially for all three of them to sleep through it. So at first, Justin stated he dreamed of the events before later, later saying he'd witnessed them and claimed at different points that one or two men, were present. Under hypnosis, Justin said that he heard sounds from the living room while watching TV in the bedroom with Rick and Greg. Upon investigating, he allegedly saw two men wearing sunglasses with Sue and was able to describe them for a portrait artist, one portion of which looked strikingly like Martin Smart. While the two men were confronting Sue, Johnny and Dana arrived home and a fight ensued.
0: What do you think of these hypnosis interviews where they get people to, to, you know, produce police sketches and stuff?
1: Well, the hypnosis sessions in this case were conducted by Sheriff Doug Thomas after just two training sessions. And it seems clear by transcripts that Justin was led. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Not a great hypnotist, huh? No. So Justin said in the session. The boys got home, a fight ensued. Tina walked in on the fight and was taken out the back door by one of the men. Some think that due to the fear of his abusive stepfather, Justin didn't come forward with everything he saw or knew about that night. Um, And he tried to kind of explain it away with nightmares or under hypnosis so he wouldn't have to directly admit to it Mm -hmm. because he'd already been almost killed by the guy once so
0: right but neither of the other two boys said they saw anything their story was just that they were asleep the whole time
1: i believe so
0: well then you know it's uh, that makes it sound more to me like this kid just had a dream later might have been filling in some gaps on his own that's a pretty traumatic event for him too
1: could have been Martin Smart was still being looked at when, sadly, the body of Tina Sharp was found in April 1984.
0: So how long had it been?
1: Three years. <sighs> around 100 miles away from the Ketty area, a bottle collector combing around Camp 18 near Feather Falls in Butte County found the cranium portion of a human skull and part of a mandible. Just the bones. Now, there were initially thoughts that these might be like a Native American who had lived in the area, like these were-
0: Old bones. Ar-
1: archaeological bones. Um,
0: a di- it's a dinosaur.
1: Yeah. Following the discovery of the skull, but before forensic identification, an anonymous tip came into police that the remains belonged to Tina. This call was recorded, but never entered into official evidence. Why? Why? It was found at the bottom of a cardboard box at some point after 2013, 20 years later.
0: That is, that's baffling police work. That's Mm -hmm. criminal police work.
1: Especially since this tip came before the official identification and people thought initially it was a Native American. So. Right. And it's a hundred miles away. Like it's not necessarily related.
0: Feels like a real dear boss letter.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Near the remains, a blue nylon jacket, a blanket, Levi's jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser were also found. You don't say. Remember the medical tape found on the bodies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the mystery of Tina's disappearance had been solved, but it clearly just led to more questions. Tina they were able to figure out had been dead for at least a year when her body had been found but this allows for the possibility that she had survived up to 2 years after the initial murders. Right.
0: Murders. Do they have like a range on that like is it possible she died that same night?
1: No, it just said at least a year. So
0: she could she have She
1: could have died that but she wasn't she wasn't fresher than a year, I would say. Why was Tina found 100 miles from Cabin 28 and who had done this? That was the big question.
0: And this was just like wilderness where she was found?
1: It was by, uh, it seems like Waterfall, Waterfall area. In 2008, Marilyn Smart stated in a documentary about the Ketti murders that her then ex-husband Martin and Bo Bo were responsible for the murders uh, and said that she had even found a blood-stained jacket belonging to Tina in her basement at the time and handed it to police. Why did she... what? There's no official records of this discovery, but this is what she said on the record. Her reasoning for why these murders occurred was apparently that Martin hated Johnny Sharp, the oldest son why i'm not really sure aside from that Day didn't think highly of Johnny called him a punk um Sheila in the documentary i watched also said that Martin despised her brother and she didn't really even know why aside from maybe that Johnny could sometimes be a smart mouth he was a 15 year old boy probably was talking back plenty so he plotted the murder of him and his family that's what marilyn said she testified that she left the local bar that night to go home around 11 p.m. and her husband and Beau stayed behind at the bar to keep drinking. Around 2 a.m. she woke up to find Martin and Beau burning an unknown item in the stove. Now, I'm a little I'm a little confused as to how this next part played out, but Martin either asked Marilyn to invite Sue Sharp to the bar that night as a possible date for Bo, or Bo asked Sue himself. Either way, Sue rejected the invitation.
0: What's Bo's relationship to this family again?
1: He's Martin's BFF. He's just
0: a buddy. (laughs) He's crashing
1: on Martin's couch, and they're neighbors to Sue.
0: Sue, come out out and double with us tonight.
1: So either Bo asked, or Martin was like, Marilyn, ask Sue. Um, she said no um, so after the murders Martin left Marilyn and Keddie behind moving to Reno Nevada this is pretty soon after okay from there he sent Marilyn a letter reading in part I've paid the price of your love and now that I've bought it with four people's lives you tell me we are through great what else do you want
0: that sounds like... What, did she request that he
1: murder them? <laughs> this letter was never officially entered into evidence, uh, despite the police Why? being made aware of it. And it was found along with the recording of the phone tip about Tina's remains in a box. And they did a test on the uh, envelope, I believe, the stamp, and they matched the DNA to Martin. So it seemed like he did send this letter.
0: Okay, so... Like, 100% this guy committed these four murders.
1: Bo, at the time that they were being questioned, um, bizarrely told investigators that he had previously been a police officer. He hadn't. And that he'd been shot in the line of duty and was rendered impotent. He wasn't. So that he would have had no interest in Sue Sharp anyway.
0: Psychopaths love lying.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And this is like an Ed Kemper situation, where he's like, "Hey, you and I were the same. We're come from the same cloth. <laughs> Except I, I can't get it up. You can." Well, he could get it up. He just had to impotent, murder coets. <laughs> no, Bo. Bo said he was oh, impotent. I thought we were. Talking so about- I wasn't. I wasn't even going to be interested in Sue anyway.
0: Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. That's well. That's good because murderers are famously never impotent.
1: <laughs> exactly. Sheriff Doug Thomas, for his part, praised Martin Smart's cooperation and declared he wasn't a suspect, emphasizing the fact that he had passed a polygraph test. Though, in future conversations with a PTSD counselor, this is after he had moved to Reno, Smart said he beat it, not passed it.
0: Uh, p- <laughs> it notably not admissible in court for this reason. Polygraph tests, yeah. yeah.
1: To quote... Those things are easy to beat. I was lying, and they let me go. He said that? To the counselor, yeah.
0: Wait, why did the counselor say this to anyone? Isn't that, like, patient client?
1: I assume it's because the counselor told them this after he had died. According to the counselor, who was questioned, um, Smart admitted that he had killed Sue and Tina, but had nothing to do with the boys. Tina had to be killed because she had seen everything. The counselor allegedly told the sheriff's office what Smart had told her, but there is no evidence of the statement ever being entered into evidence.
0: What does it even mean that he had nothing to do with the boys? It just means Bo killed the boys? I assume
1: that's what that means. Yeah. He want. I assume if this is the case, he wanted to kill Sue, Tina had seen, so she had to die. Right. And Bo was the one dealing with the guys and the other boys, they just left because they were sleeping. So I I assume he didn't intend on killing Tina.
0: Can you do anything f- about the total lack of satisfying motive in this case, please? <laughs>
1: uh no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Martin and Bo were friendly with the local police officers before the massacre happened, and someone in the sheriff's department allegedly tipped them off that they were suspects, which precipitated both of them piecing out of California.
0: Oh, that's how he ended up in Reno.
1: Mm-hmm. Perhaps the police also covered up the pair's involvement, or just let them go once they left Cali.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it.
1: A lot of people think that. There's even speculation that Bobaday was a protected informant by the Department of Justice because of his relation to the Chicago mob. And that possibly the DOJ hampered the Keddie investigation because of this.
0: Oh, that's fair. That's actually really interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. There is even speculation that Marilyn Smart was involved in the massacre as well, with the website Keddie28.com calling her a key conspirator and fellow murderer. I couldn't find out necessarily why they said that. Martin's wife? Yeah.
0: She seemed pretty forthcoming. Well... I don't know, wait, did she? is the implication that Marilyn knew about all this that same night? Like, she got home and Martin was like, oops.
1: She might have. I mean, she she said that she found them burning something in the stove. She didn't know what. But maybe she knew more. I don't know. Bobaday died in Chicago, back in the old hometown, in 1988, and Smart died in Oregon in 2000.
0: How's Bobaday's name spelled?
1: B-O-U-B-E-D-E. Boobaday? Oh, Boobaday? Yeah, no. Bobaday?
0: Bo-ba-day. Yeah, that works for me. I thought it was like B-O, like Bo Jackson. He goes, B-I-D-E-T. His name is
1: John Boobaday, and he goes by Bo. I see. You know, like... It's like a real Smitty. shit kicker, yeah. <laughs> Cabin 28 was demolished in 2004, though reports of paranormal activity persist in the area, much like with other famous murder sites in 2016 a hammer was found in a pond <sighs> near cabin 28 now who exactly located this hammer varies from source to source some say it was an anonymous tip some say it was a tip from a family member member of john bobaday another source says the information came from a person using a metal detector just kind of sure an around.
0: old person looking for change yeah yeah <laughs>
1: Um, no matter what, it matched the description of the hammer Martin Smart had claimed to have lost. <laughs> In April of 2016, a knife was also recovered near the scene. As of these discoveries, the current sheriff, Greg Hagwood, was actively investigating six different suspects. Why? Because he he's, he's a cool guy. I like him. Um, he really just wants to solve this he went to school i think with johnny or oh uh the other boys um
0: yeah but isn't the evidence pretty if you're actually looking at it pretty open and shut
1: there's not a lot of hard evidence it's a lot of circumstantial stuff the guys are already dead you know it's hard um but he's pretty serious about wanting to close this case In 2018, the Plumas County Special Investigator, Mike Gamberg, who at the time of the killings uh, was working in the sheriff's office and was told to stay away from the case or get fired, stated that DNA evidence recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene matched that of a known living suspect, though he did not disclose who that suspect was. And I will say that at this time, I think she's since passed, Marilyn was still alive. Interesting, because I was trying to figure out who could this living person be, right? Because and cause... in 2015, um, Joel Lipsey, the teacher, had died. So I'm just trying to figure out who could be, yeah, still around.
0: And this DNA was on the crime scene,
1: in the medical, tape, medical um, tape that was on one of the bodies. Yeah. Gamberg and Sheriff Hagwood have no problem with declaring the investigation into the Keddy cabin murders as corrupt, saying clear admissions of guilt had been made by Martin Smart and ignored purposefully. Mm -hmm. Gamberg states that the entire massacre was covered up, and it appears that instead of arresting the suspects, the police told them to leave town. Sheriff Doug Thomas had even, according to Smart's counseling sessions, lived with Martin Smart at Cabin 28 before the Sharps moved to Ketty during a time of marital strife between Martin and Marilyn. Wow. So their original place was Cabin 26. They were fighting with each other. 28 was vacant. He lived there, and so did Sheriff Thomas.
0: And this is shortly, you know, just a few years before he murdered a woman and her children there.
1: It seemed like it was pretty shortly before the Sharps moved into cabin
0: 28 wow i wonder if he still had a key
1: (laughs) yeah i mean there was no um no evidence of forced entry sheriff thomas insisted to people magazine that quote martin smart was not a friend of mine at one point he and his wife were having marital problems and they came to my office when i was sheriff and wanted me to counsel them first of all i had just gone through a divorce at that time I told them, why would you want me to counsel you? So it seems like...
0: They asked me to stay on their couch.
1: It seems like <laughs> Sheriff Thomas was divorced and possibly looking for a place to crash.
0: It was like a bachelor pad, like a fun bachelor pad for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. While And then they
0: got the band back together a few years later and murdered <laughs> a lady.
1: And covered it up.
0: And covered it up.
1: While Sheriff Hagwood does not state it on the record... The theory that Tina Sharp was kidnapped by a pedophile linked to powerful local men has been put forward. This is a theory that's been backed by some in the FBI, including um, criminal profiler, John Douglas, a mind hunter fame.
0: Oh, this is along with the, like presumably Martin did the murder, but then he handed Tina off or.
1: Well, John Douglas said shockingly that Tina may have been involved with what transpired in the cabin, with the killings being an afterthought and not premeditated. Douglas feels the crime was committed by a single individual who had groomed Tina into a relationship, and Tina left willingly. He notes how Sue was covered with the blanket to be made decent because she was nude from the waist down, which seems to contradict the level of violence at the scene. Um, Didn't seem like they were too concerned about leaving her like that. He thinks that Tina was the one to cover her mother off, cover her mother up. Um, And if this is the case, it makes you wonder even more how long Tina lived after the murders and what could have happened to her during this time to lead to her eventual fate. Not good things. No. Well, that's a much darker. That's John Douglas for you. Mm -hmm. There is one person who directly confessed to the Keddy murders, and this is Robert Silveria Jr., the boxcar killer.
0: Oh, well, he confessed. There you go.
1: Silveria is believed to have killed up to 14 people while living a transient lifestyle on freight trains throughout the U.S. and was arrested in 1996.
0: Now, they used a very loose account of his life for the boxcar children novels, right?
1: Yeah, the children were all people he had murdered. (laughs) At the time of the murders, he had lived in nearby Quincy, and a bomb being pressed by police confessed to the crime. Despite this, it was soon revealed that he had already been in police custody at the time of the murders for stealing a car, giving him a pretty tight alibi and making it impossible for him to be at Cabin 28 on the night of April 11th.
0: Yeah, we talked about it with Henry Lee Lucas, too. A (laughs) a lot of uh, serial killers. you are doing
1: stuff, you are in jail over here. You can't. He's like, no, 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 no,
0: yeah, I did that one too. Mm -hmm. Um, They love it because it gets them more attention. A lot of times Mm -hmm. it gets them out of the prison for a day while they go show the police where a body is. Mm -hmm. Uh, It gets them some, um, in uh, Henry Lee Lucas's case, I think a lot of just Burger King.
1: Yep. Yeah, they basically took a road trip with him. (laughs) Though the case was likely subjected to heavy tampering and has remained officially unsolved for just about 40 years, Sheriff Hagwood and Mike Gamberg want to close the case and bring comfort and closure to the Keddie community. Hagwood recently stated, quote, it's my belief that there were more than two people who were involved in the totality of the crime, the disposal of the evidence and the abduction of the little girl. Now, I think this is very, this is just me. I think this is very interesting wording if we think Marilyn's involved. We're talking about the totality of the crime. Mm-hmm. Disposal of evidence and abduction. She could have, thats that seems very specific, a specific way of putting it. Yeah. We're convinced that there are a handful of people that fit those roles who are still alive. I have a measure of confidence that we have identified some of them and we're going to be coming. could be next month. It could be next year. But really the focus in our priority is getting the truth, getting the answers.
0: Do you think Marilyn got paid for being in that documentary?
1: I don't know. Maybe.
0: Pretty shady. So do you think that's who he's talking about?
1: I think it's a... That and, like, the living person thing, I think, is is a very interestingly specific, yet vague uh-huh. way to say... It's a blind item. It, it, yeah, it's basically a way to say, there's more than just the people that you think are involved. Right. And so, in trying to figure out who that could be, you know, could be Marilyn. hmm Since the murders, we've gotten the 2008 home invasion horror film, The Strangers which some say is based on the case, though the film and filmmakers themselves don't make this specific claim. Uh, They just market it as being inspired by true events, which could have been these events, but they never alluded to it. The same year an indie film called Cabin 28 was released, which bore the tagline based on the true life murders, which inspired the strangers, (laughs) which I think is very funny. Yes. There have also been various documentaries and true crime series episodes on the case. And as far as I know, they're still working on getting that final uh, solution. Oh, no, no.
0: Yeah, no. We we, we don't put those two words together anymore.
1: (laughs) That final answer. Answer. Final answer. That's Mm -hmm. my final answer. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Regis Philbin is better (laughs) than that other guy. (laughs)
1: 100%. Uh, and that's the end of our investigation into the Keddie Cabin murders. So, what do you think, Sean? Could it have been a pedophile teacher? Two low-life creeps? A cover-up like Sheila Sharp herself believes? Well, it seems... Aliens? It
0: seems so obviously to be the two local creeps.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in fact, they admitted to it. One of them admitted to it several times.
1: Yeah, I think in that situation, it's sort of one of those cases of like... Do we believe this guy? Like, is he just, you know,
0: all bluster and? What do you think Martin's letter meant when he said that that was the cost of? I don't her know her love.
1: I mean, maybe.
0: Did she want? Was the? Did you clock any reason she would have wanted Sue dead?
1: I didn't personally, nor could I see why she might have wanted Tina. Like, maybe she wanted a child or whatever, but what was their plan after that? They were her neighbors. Right. Um, I really don't know. But that's also, like, a weirdly specific but vague thing. So.
0: I also feel like Tina probably died very shortly afterward because Martin didn't disappear.
1: Especially considering the medical tape dispenser at the scene. Yeah. That it had, seems yeah. like something that he brought over from the crime scene Disposed the of, night before or whatever. Yeah. And left it there. Um, Why she ended up 100 miles away, near some waterfalls or whatever, I have no idea.
0: She wasn't found for quite a while. That's true.
1: So, yeah, that's the uh, Keddie Cabin murders. Still officially unsolved.
0: so dumb. That's terrible police work. That's a gripping story.
1: Yeah, it's really, really scary. (laughs) Genuinely.
0: Uh, Home invasions, you know, the strangers is... um... I think pretty a pretty um hard film to pry your eyes away from mm-hmm. and uh, a pretty scary one and i don't get scared by many things uh, home invasions are scary it's hard to find uh, uh uh you know show me an american man who's not afraid of uh, his his fate but it's also our uh fantasy secretly all of us think <laughs> we're gonna fight off the invaders
1: let's not make that your fantasy i, I know you have a bat next to our bed but please I don't, I don't want it to happen. No, neither do I. I. You know what? I believe you. I believe you could fight them off. So let's just leave it there.
0: Oh, be, I could do it, though.
1: <laughs> My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News
0: producer, and I am now the host of the podcast Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic. And now each week, I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows.
1: This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store, it could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month's subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. Today, we're crying saucers. Oh. The Sun US reports that, thanks to a Freedom of Information Act request, the Pentagon has confirmed that it has been holding and testing wreckage from UFO crashes with the findings possibly enough to change our lives forever. Get more into this headline! (laughs) What? Uh, Researcher Anthony Bregalia submitted the request. Bregalia wrote to the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, requesting details on all of their UFO material. In response, the DIA shared 154 pages of test results, including reports on a mysterious memory metal called nitinol, which remembers its original shape when folded. The documents reveal that some of the retrieved debris possesses extraordinary capabilities, including the potential to make things invisible or even slow down the speed of light what <laughs> i think that's according to Brigalia, but all of the papers <laughs> okay. all of the papers okay. are online okay bregalia stated quote they have been able to learn some things about the materials of construction which hold tremendous promise as futuristic materials which will change our lives forever the tests on the materials were carried out by bigelow aerospace bigelow aerospace one of the department of defense's independent contractors that are based in las vegas nevada all bigelow aerospace employees were laid off in march due to the pandemic and brigelia thinks that the ufo material the physical material was probably returned to the pentagon after this oh what a shame <laughs> the freedom of information act request was first made in 2017 and took 3 years to fulfill in which time the Pentagon revealed that they had been studying UFOs under the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or AATIP, A-tip, A-tip.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: A-tip. <laughs> he told the Sun, "Material evidence such as UFO debris has been a focus of my research. My Freedom of Information Act request was very specific, seeking the test results of UFO UAP debris." not material already known to science. So he specifically asked about wreckage and things like that. I assume if he hadn't, he would have gotten more, but maybe because it was so specific, they gave it to him. I don't know.
0: So it's 150 pages of documents about them doing research on crash crash sites? Yeah, it's
1: five different papers, basically, and 150-something pages. He believes... Uh, Bregalia believes some of the materials that's been tested could be the remnants of the 1947 Roswell incident, Mm. since the memory metal description of nitinol corresponds to some witness testimony from Roswell. Though the DIA seems forthcoming in this response, they did hold back certain details about the materials, including any information about if they could be of alien origin. Portions of the five documents released to Brigalia were redacted, and according to him, specifically omitted information on the chemical and elemental composition of the material, as well as its origin. So we'll be keeping you posted on anything more alien. But well, that's a pretty crazy story.
0: It is. I would start with if it's unidentified. They probably don't know its origin to put it in the document for you there, uh, buddy.
1: Well. There was a bunch of stuff that was redacted, and uh, I believe these documents are available to view online, so check them out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to at least see the titles, like I do with any scientific paper. I'm going to look <laughs> at the title, not understand that, and then make Make an opinion based on
1: that. <laughs> yep.
0: Um, great. Sounds great. I, I look forward to doing that. <laughs>
1: That's it for this episode of ain't it scary with Sean and Carrie like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ain't it scary and check out our website at www.ain'tscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at patreon.com slash it scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple podcasts. We'll be forever grateful.
0: Yep. Special thanks to our tier three patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, and Maria Ferrante. We love you all so much.
1: See you next Thursday.
0: Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can check Kyle out on his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. He does lots of cool musical-related stuff over
1: there. This has been a production of Longboy Media.
0: (laughs) On the morning of August 1st, 1966...